0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Rouleur is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Established in 2006, Rouleur interviews the world's biggest cycling names and covers the world's biggest cycling races – Visit our website at ruler.cc and subscribe to support our in depth features, long reads, independent journalism, stunning photography, and immersive cycling coverage. I'm Edward Pickering, I'm the editor of Ruler, and this is Rouleur Conversations. I'm joined today by James Start, who is sunning himself on the Mediterranean coast as he does his final taper for the Criterium du Dauphiné. Although amusingly, I checked the weather today, it's currently raining in Provence. How are you James?
1: I'm good, but where I'm at it's, it's, it's sunny. Down here in Set, actually, which is a little port town on the on the Mediterranean. And it's interesting because you're talking about tapering for the Dauphiné. Well, I discovered this town like 30 years ago, because there was another great race here called the Grand Prix de Midi Libre, and the Grand Prix de Midi Libre always finished on this climb over the top of the town. And this was a perfect run into the Dauphiné. All the all the guys who didn't do the Giro back in the day would do the Midi Libre and then the Dauphiné as he prepared for the Tour. So in a way, it is a perfect ramp up.
2: <laughs> Midi Libre is one of the great lost races of cycling, isn't it? Absolutely. Over
1: 50 years, it was just a beautiful race. It was down here in the Midi. Uh, there was the first race of summer, huge, huge list of major uh, Tour de France contenders. And yet they were all very relaxed uh, because you're just far enough out from the tour. When you get to the Dauphiné, things are getting tense, uh, but the, at the Midi-Libre, they were still pretty laid back. So it was really a special, wonderful race. I miss it even to this day, but I'm um, looking forward to going back to the Dauphiné. I wasn't there last year and uh, it's going to be a great one. So, uh, you know, I can't wait.
2: So I'm, I'm British, so I'm well within my comfort zone talking about the weather. Bad weather especially um, is topical because we're going to be doing a small debrief here on the on the Giro d'Italia, which finished last weekend in Rome. The Malia Rosa was won by Primoz Roglic, 14 seconds ahead of Geraint Thomas, with Joao Almeida in third. So, James, Giro's done and dusted now. How did you enjoy the race?
1: Very much. I mean, I always loved the Giro. Yeah, there was a few days where I was like, OK, when's the real racing going to start? But at the same time, I mean... These guys are professionals they're giving their all. It's just such a brutal race and it was made more brutal this year with the weather for the first at least the first 2 weeks was just insane and then all the sickness and the and the crashing and everything. It was just, you know, it was havoc out there for 2 weeks. I think the guys came out of the second week kind of in a survival mode which I think maybe uh, explains a little bit of wh- about why the attacking took a little time to to settle in. But how many times has the Giro been like just totally turned upside down in the last day or the last two days, and once again it was the case. I mean, it's 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 a crazy race uh, with the weather, uh, with the 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 climbs, with these brutal climbs that are you know long. It's just it's more unpredictable than the Tour de France in many
2: ways. Yeah, I'm always interested in how our perceptions of bike races change from when we're right in the middle of them to immediately afterwards which I guess is where we are now and then to how longer term they settle into their place in history and I thought the 2023 Giro was interesting on that front because I think I've got a slightly different interpretation of it than you maybe a, a less positive one my impression of it was that objectively speaking it was a pretty dull race for the GC but it did have an absolute belter of a finale which was the Monte Lussori time trial so my opinion is that that time trial rescued the race it was incredible the scenery was like something out of a fairy tale the race itself was finely balanced and dramatic and suddenly i was back in love with the geo again but i have not forgotten that there was a lot of nothing happening before that point
1: well you know okay true it's all relative but yeah i mean the finale will put that race down in history as a great race primo's finally turn you know turning the tables i mean it seemed like everything that Happened to Primos and the Giro, uh, is what he, he kind of was. He raced, he, he did the Giro like Pogachar did the tour in 2020. The jumbo team dominated, Primos was dominating, and and Toddy just sat back, sat back, and waited for that last time trial. And he even lost time on one of the climbing days, like Primos did, uh, here and yet turned it all around on that last TT. That's very much what happened. I try not to have favourites and and things like that. And, you know, every winner is a worthy winner. Uh, I would love to have seen Garrett win. He really deserved it. It would have been so beautiful. Um, But at the same time, you know, Primoz's victory was beautiful and he deserved it too. And that's bike racing, you know. That's the the show that they present us, the drama they give us. And at the end of these three weeks, I stand up and applause.
2: Yeah, I think the difference between Roglic and Thomas in this Giro, when all was said and done was that Thomas was... Pretty busy trying not to lose the Giro, whereas Roglic actually went out to try and win it because you know the, all you know the difference was in that time trial. He saved it all for one climb, but that was the difference between them. I think Thomas rode a defensive race, and like you said, Roglic did to Thomas what Pogacar did to him in the 2020 Tour de France, which is kind of ride round, save everything for one massive spectacular effort, and win the entire race on that. And it you know, it is a stunning turnaround and with Roglic you get that resonance don't you of the the fact that he he got caught out in 2020 and it was dramatic and I don't want to call it a career-defining law I think the career of Primoz Roglic is is fine without without having to define it by um, that one defeat Um, but the you know the the historical resonance is quite something isn't it
1: well absolutely Um, but you know we call it you know there was a great book um, by a, a French writer who was a, who loved cycling Antoine Blondin and he was a he was a novelist but um, passionate about cycling and he wrote a book called the Irony of sport and it's true bicycle racing there are so many stories to tell and so much irony I mean how many times does, does somebody win the day his first child was born or on their birthday or something like that. And the irony here is there, there, there are just so many links to be made with Thomas's loss and Primo's win. It was very moving. I, I mean, I just thought, I don't quite agree be, uh, with the way it went out because I thought Thomas, he wrote brilliantly and, you know, and he went on the attack with Almeida and dropped Primo's that one day. I mean, I was like going, okay, Primo's, when are you going to get in this race? And then when he dropped his chain going up the climb on uh, the last TT, I was like, "Well, here we go again." You know, something happens to Primos and he can't close out the deal. I mean, I was behind him in Paris Nice when he crashed twice on the last day and lost the race. Um, and that wasn't the only time stuff like that's happened to him. So he's he's had this in term not just with the Tour de France, but in a lot of other major races. He's he struggled sometimes to close out the deal, even though he's been the strongest rider. But he did it here. And it made it all that much more satisfying, I think, for him and for the riders. And and I was very happy for him. I mean, when he first came on the scene, I really didn't get who he was. I found him a little too cool, lacked some emotion. But it's actually in his defeats, where uh, his many defeats, where I've seen another side of Primo's that is really very heartening. Um, I mean, I remember up on the Planche de Bellefie, you know, he had just lost the tour that was his. It reminded me of the great duel between um, Laurent Fignon and Greg Lemond in 86. And, you know, Fignon never got over that that loss. He was devastated. And Primoz had, after the finish, he, you know, he had his kid on his arm. His wife was by the side. He was much more interested in, in seeing his kid than he was in lamenting the loss of the Giro, uh, the Tour de France, it seemed. I was on a motor actually the day when he crashed twice in Perinisa and lost that race. What was it two years ago, I think? Three years ago now. It was clear that he was off the back, his race was over. I waited for him. I, I expected to see his whole team around him kind of rolling in with him, you know, and show of support. No, he was all alone going all out, all the way to the finish. And he did that for like 10 The last, the whole last climb, last 10K, and I was with him alone for a while in the moto, and he did not lit up. He was driving to the finish, and I'm sure in his earpiece, he knew that race was over. But I I just, I mean, I had so much respect for him there. And again, at the finish, what? His wife is there, his kid is there, his kid's in his arms, and he's chatting with the reporters like nothing happened. So I've come to really um, have a lot of admiration for Roglic as a bike racer and as a human being. So I was also, you know, very happy to see him win the Giro finally and put a lot of bad luck behind him.
2: Yeah, that's true. Although I think he gets unfairly defined as being unlucky or unfortunate or some kind of tragic hero because of the highly visible crashes and defeats that he's had. But I think in general, over the career of Primoz Roglic, he's been incredibly consistent and he's won a lot of races. I, I look back over his Palmares, he's won at least two World Tour stage races every season back to and including 2018 um which is what's that 6 years now he's been winning two world tour stage races a year he's won the vuelta 3 times and now the giro so he's got four grand tour victories on his books and yet the the main reason i i feel that this giro victory is quite good for his career is because maybe finally people will see that he's not some kind of unlucky loser he's actually one of the most successful and consistent racers there has been in cycling in the last few years. The only thing is he's not won the Tour de France yet. Exactly.
1: And and he also has an amazing ability to bounce back. He'll take a, a beating and then come back and win, you know, a major race. I mean like uh the two he lost the tour and he came back and won Liege Best en Liege, I believe, wasn't it? His ability to come back is amazing. I mean after two thousand twenty, you know, he could have been devastated and called it a season. And he came back a couple of weeks later and won Liege Best en Liège. He's a guy he doesn't give up, and he comes back, and he's he's lost the tours and come back and won the and I think he won the Vuelta that year. He's very resilient. Win lose, he puts a race behind him very quickly and moves on to the next.
2: And you mentioned Garrett Thomas there as well, and I think Garrett Thomas's strategy in this Giro, as it, as it was at the Tour de France last year, and it's it's a valid strategy. I'm not I'm, I'm not criticising it. He liked a controlled, quiet race where strength, and endurance and resilience are the important things. And, you know, he, he rode that to second place. And I think Ineos were also handicapped a bit. You know, they lost so many riders. They lost a genuine contender for the overall win, which was Togeg and Hart. But they also lost Filippo Ganna and Pavel Sivakov, whose crucial support, um, you know, with Ganna in, in the flat stages and Sivakov deep into the finale, of the mountain stages. So it's not really a criticism. It's just, I, I think... Thomas was kind of stuck between his strategy, which is what it is, and the fact that with five of them left on the team, there's not really that much you can do to shake the race up. Yeah, I thought they
1: raced brilliantly considering what they had to work with. Losing, yeah, I mean, you're talking three, I mean, they lost nearly half their team, right? Including their co-leader. You know, this would have been a tremendous race. There's always what if, and could have, and I could have been, and, and, and this and that. And it would have been, you know, really an amazing race if Remco had made it to the finish, if Teo had made it to the finish, you know, uh, Vlasov, some of these other guys. I mean, would Remco have made it up that last climb? I actually thought Ineosin and Garrett raced brilliantly considering that the team they they had left, um, you know, they they lost some of their biggest riders, a co-leader, potential winner, a previous winner, and two key support riders. I mean, I thought they did brilliantly with the cards that they had been dealt over the three weeks. So it was, it was a very interesting, but this, this race, you know, it was also a race of what have been, what if uh, Remco didn't drop out? Would he have made it up that last climb? What if Teo didn't crash out? Uh, how would that have changed the dynamics within EOS? There's so many questions that, that will remain unresolved in, in this year's Giro. But at the end, we had this great duel and two great stories, two great potential winners. And um, I think it still will go down as a great Giro.
2: One of the other key things, I think, which affected the racing was the protagonists themselves. I think it was clear by the third week there were three riders in the race, and that was Geraint Thomas, Primoz Robolic and Joao Almeida. Not insignificantly, these riders ride for Ineos Grenadiers, uh, Jumbo Visma and UAE Emirates. And as you said, Ev who pulled out rides for Soudal Quickstep, and they were much less of a factor in this race because they'd lost so many. They didn't just lose Evinable. I think they lost over half their squad. So they, they were less influential in this race. But what I noticed, in the final, in, especially in the final week, was that though a bit of control was ceded to Groupama FTJ, who had Bruno high in the uh, pink jersey, um, the race was basically dictated by... UAE, Emirates, Ineos and Jumbo Visma, three very, very strong teams, the three strongest teams in the world, I would say and also when when you look back over the last few years, of the last ten Grand Tours nine have been won by Jumbo, UAE, Ineos or Quickstep who have won at the end there with uh, last year's Vuelta and I think these teams are dominating quite a, a little quietly because there is some question of which of the riders is best but it's not like the 2010s where sky were crushing everyone in the grand tours but the situation now is a bit it's more like an oligarchy now where there are these strong teams and no one else is getting a look in. And I think that was kind of underreported a little bit during the race, but I still think it was very significant.
1: They're the best tour teams, you know, now, and they have been, and they probably will be this summer come the Tour de France, huh? because uh, I think we're looking at very much a similar matchup between the different leaders that they are sending to, to the tour. I mean, between Pogachar, Vingegaard, Bernal, uh, all these guys, um, it's going to be. You know, it's going to be really interesting.
2: So what are your very final thoughts, takeaways and memories of this Giro, James? Well, you know, brutal weather,
1: brutal racing, really brutal racing and a great finale. I still give it high marks. A bike race is is what it is. And you're dealt a certain hand. The races are dealt a certain hand between the weather and sickness and and this. And they do what they can with it as actors, really. And... um, you know, there was still just a, a ton of tremendous performances. I mean, that stage one by Ben Healy. I mean, geez, that was so impressive. And so many small stories, like uh, Warren Barguil. I mean, he lost like 25 minutes. on was at stage six. And, you know, up up in the rain, Sodden, race up the Amalfi Coast. I believe that was the one. And, you know, he still was in so many breakaways, and he still finished. And then, you know, Thibaut Pinot, I mean, just dragging his... Tail for the first two weeks on the verge of dropping out, sick, getting dropped. Finishes fifth and best climber in his last uh, year of racing, one of his best races ever. It's just tremendous. There's so many, you know, great small stories as there often are in the Grand Tours.
2: Yeah, that's true. A Grand Tour is multiple narratives, isn't it? We looking at the Giro d'Italia just from the through the prism of the general classification is to miss so many sub stories. So the, I thought that the stages were were great. There were. I enjoyed the stage to San Blorne at the end of the first week. That was a rare bit of dynamism in the GC race. I also enjoyed, from a journalistic standpoint, Mark Cavendish's win on the last day. It's just an epic story, really, you know, in his last ever Giro stage. The old warhorse coming out for one last stage victory was compelling, and I, I, I enjoyed watching that and... That added an extra layer of luster, I think, to the race. It was an amazing, it was
1: pure Cavendish. And he wrote, I mean, it was, I could tell going to the last K, he was, nobody's going to beat him. Nobody. It was like Cavendish had his best. And, you know, he, he crashed his way over the line here, you know, gotten boxed out there. He wasn't in it for so many stages. And then boom, brilliant, just brilliant. But, you know, Cavendish is proof that you never count out a great champion, ever. And he's one of the best examples of that. And he proved, I mean, this is one of his great wins.
2: I'm interrupting this podcast to remind all listeners to subscribe to Ruler, the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Our latest edition, out now, is Ruler 119, the Soul issue. Cycling both as a sport and activity, is all about soul. As cyclists, we know that the bike is the most efficient way of getting us from A to B, but riding also makes our hearts sing. Cycling makes us feel. Rulo 119 features an exclusive interview with Renko Evenepoel, the world champion and one of the current generation of cycling superstars. He tells us why the Giro d'Italia makes him dream and reveals how he has tried to smooth some of his rougher edges. Also in Rulo 119, Victoria Pendleton, the multiple Olympic champion, whose post-racing life has been a process of constant reinvention. The soul of bike racing. Cycling fandom in the 1980s and what it says about cycling fandom. Enzo Stiola, the former child actor who appeared in the seminal Italian movie Bicycle Thieves, a reflective journey across Morocco. Onguza Bikes wabby Sabi and riding in Japan, and much, much more. Rouleur is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture, and Rouleur 119 is available now. To support our journalism and receive a magazine every six weeks, please subscribe. Go to ruler.cc, hit the subscribe button, and enter the code PODCAST15. PODCAST15 to get 15% off our regular subscription price. And now, back to the show. So the next big race, which starts on Sunday, is the Criterium du Dauphiné. And James, you're going to be on the back of a moto throughout the race, or are you by the roadside? Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, On on the moto, all all the days. We start not far from Clermont-Ferrand, where you and I were not too long ago, doing a reportage on the Puy-de-Dôme. And the Criterium has a a partnership now with the region of Auvergne. So we always start in the Auvergne and move our way across uh, which is fine because it gives you some good variety of racing and expands the territory a bit. And then we have the final weekend. We go into the high Alps, you know, the called the Quad the, the Fair, And then we have this amazing finish, which we haven't done in, I think, nearly 30 years, uh, up the, the Bastille climb in Grenoble. And if you've ever been to Grenoble, you can't miss the Bastille. It, it just towers above the city on the other side of the, uh, of the river. And the climb is brutal. I mean, it's. I was there the last time we went up. It's brutal, and it's going to be uh, race defining as well.
2: That Bastille climb is interesting, as you say. The the Bastille is a fortification which towers over the city of Grenoble. It's very, very striking bit of architecture. It's built by a military engineer called Vauban, who was, I think, I think he was Napoleon's military engineer, and he built a whole range of fortifications all around the borders of france there are, there are actually dozens and dozens of these fortifications and bike racing has got quite an intimate relationship with these there's one in the stage finish that the tour de france had in Longwy, uh, both last year where tadej pogacar won i think and i think a few years ago peter sagan won there maybe 2017 2018 uh, kind of time and Longwy is another example of vauban's uh, fortifications and there's also one in briançon Um, Which has also got a very similar steep climb up to it, but this one in Grenoble, it's the very, very final climb of the entire race, and it's a couple of kilometres. And you know, fortifications are built on hills. That's what makes them effective. There was a saying about Vauban, which is if if a town had his fortification, it would never be taken. And one of the reasons is it's on a hill, very hard to conquer. And I think the riders of the Dauphiné are going to discover this very same thing because it's a couple of kilometres and the average gradient is 14%. Wow. Yeah, yeah,
1: I know it. I mean, I remember what I remember about it was uh, race commissaire cars getting just conked out, stopped and, and couldn't make it around the last hairpin turn. And I remember a certain Miguel Indurain sporting a three ring chain ring. I mean, that was the first time I'd ever seen a major professional rider with a third uh, third chain ring I and mean, that's how steep it was
2: do you expect to see bike changes onto gravel gears at the bottom of that climb
1: uh yeah who knows really who knows at this point because you know the whole gearing thing is is, is evolving so so quickly uh, and we saw it you know obviously in the Giro so and and we we'll see what kind of gears they pull out I mean they, they've got all kinds of options today I'll be curious to see what kind of gears they pull out on that on the bestie but the, I wouldn't be surprised if you see a few bike changes yeah going into that last climb
2: so uh, the race Overall, it's got got an interesting parkour, hasn't it? it? It it rolls through quite grippy stages in the in the Massive Central. Um you know, there's there's I think three they're just lumpy, aren't they? They're kind of high altitude, not not long high climbs, but the riders just spend a lot of time kind of bumping up between about six hundred and a thousand metres, and it's just kind of tiring roads that suck at your tires and slow you down. Then there's a a Relatively long, well, there's a mid-length time trial at thirty-one kilometers, which is relatively flat, and then and then the mountains. It's not a race for the sprinters, maybe, but maybe more the kind of Michael Matthews, daryl Impey, kind of sprinter, and then into the high mountains. Those first three days are
1: always deceivingly hard. I mean, it's just up and down, up and down. The weather is is all over the place. Those are real leg breakers. I mean, there is a real race of attrition. Uh, so we'll see where it goes. But uh, you know, we have a great field. Um, it's always a great race and I I, yeah I love it I love doing it
2: great well we look forward to seeing what you get from the Criterium du Dauphiné James that's it for ruler conversations this week we'll try and check in with James from the Dauphiné next week Uh, and we'll be back also with a few teasers from our Tour de France magazine which is out soon thank you for listening thank you You have been listening to Ruler Conversations. Ruler Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Ruler Magazine. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Ruler and on Instagram at Ruler Magazine, or visit our website at Ruler.cc. This edition of Ruler Conversations was produced by Joseph Perry of Content is Queen.
0: Planning for your next trip?